Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the Liberal government's worst fears were realized after former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould gave her side of the story on the SNC-Lavalin fiasco. Michael Cohen spoke before the U.S. Congress in order to paint a picture about Donald Trump. How did that go? And also, the summit between Trump and Kim Jong-un was called off abruptly. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I'm going to get into the uh, the actions that happened yesterday. Uh, the Trudeau government's worst fears came true as uh, former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould spoke of continued attempts to have her change her decision to not interfere in the SNC-Lavalin court case. It was a dynamic uh, testimony from uh, the former Attorney General, and the Q&A that followed that went uh, much longer than everybody anticipated. I think they turned over just about every rock. Some of it was partisan, I get that. But uh, the comments uh, from uh, the ex-minister right at the beginning, I think really kind of set the tone and and opened a few people's eyes because there's been so much speculation about what happened, who said what. Uh, the Prime Minister was able to speak on this, but uh, Wilson-Raybould was not, and this was her opportunity. Now, there were some restrictions, as she's talked about, but I want to play just a little piece of, of what she said yesterday, and then we're going to get some reaction to that. Uh, this is part of, uh, I believe, the opening statement, kind of a confluence of, uh, of a few of the things that uh, that the former minister had. So let's listen a little bit to, uh, to Jody Wilson-Raybould, and then we'll talk about it. For a period of approximately four months between September and December of 2018, I experienced a consistent and sustained effort by many people within the government to seek to politically interfere in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion in my role as the Attorney General of Canada in an inappropriate effort to secure a deferred prosecution agreement with SNC-Lavalin. These events involved 11 people, excluding myself and my political staff, from the Prime Minister's office, the Privy Council office, and the office of the Minister of Finance. This included in-person conversations, telephone calls, emails, and text messages. There were approximately 10 phone calls and 10 meetings specifically about SNC, and I and or my staff were a part of these meetings. Within these conversations, there were expressed statements regarding the necessity of interference in the SNC-Lavalin matter, the potential of consequences, and veiled threats if a DPA was not made available to SNC. These conversations culminated in December the 19th of 2018 with a conversation I had with the Clerk of the Privy Council, a conversation that I will provide some significant detail on. A few weeks later, on January the 7th, 2019, I was informed by the Prime Minister that I was being shuffled out of the role of Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada. For most of these conversations, I made contemporaneous notes, detailed notes, in addition to my clear memory, which I am relying on today, among other documentation. My goal in my testimony is to outline the details of these communications for the committee and indeed all Canadians. However, before doing that, let me make a couple of comments. First, I want to thank Canadians for their patience since the February 7th story which broke in the Globe and Mail. Thank you as well specifically to those who have reached out to me across the country. I appreciate the messages and I have read all of them. Secondly, on the role of the Attorney General. The Attorney General exercises prosecutorial discretion as provided for under the Director of Public Prosecutions Act. Generally, this authority is exercised by the Director of Public Prosecutions, but the Attorney General has authority to issue directives to the DPP on specific prosecutions or to take over prosecutions. It is well established that the Attorney General exercises prosecutorial discretion. She or he does so individually and independently. These are not cabinet decisions. I will say that it is appropriate for cabinet or colleagues to draw to the Attorney General's attention what they see as important policy considerations that are relevant to decisions about how a prosecution will proceed. What is not appropriate is pressing the Attorney General on matters that she or he cannot take into account, such as partisan political considerations, continuing to urge the Attorney General to take her or his mind four months after the decision has been made, or suggesting that a collision with the Prime Minister on these matters should be avoided. 
Well, uh, it looks as if that collision that uh, Minister, ex-minister, I guess, uh, Wilson Raybolt uh, was talking about did, in fact, happen. And as she said, she did lose her portfolio. Uh, it went on for quite some time, and so did the Q&A. And uh, late last evening, the uh, Prime Minister responded. I strongly maintain, as I have from the beginning, that I and my staff always acted appropriately and professionally. I therefore completely disagree with the former Attorney General's characterization of events. And so it goes. Uh, is this just going to uh, be a he-said-she-said said situation, or are there points of law here and, and some ethical standards that I think have to be addressed? Joining us to uh, assess what happened yesterday is Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch and adjunct professor at uh, the University of Ottawa. Duff, thank you so much for the time on a busy day. Good to have you with us again. My pleasure. Maybe right off the top, your impressions of what you saw yesterday. Well, it was definitely uh, pressure, and that crosses the line. It violates the constitutional principle of um, independence for the Attorney General in terms of making decisions on prosecutions. And uh, I'm not quite sure why Jody Wilson-Raybould is saying one thing, which is she's saying that's not illegal. Yeah, it is illegal to violate constitutional principles. They're part of the Constitution. Um, so uh, also clear evidence that many people violated the federal ethics law. And, and she made a the, the segment that we played there. She made a pretty clear distinction, I think, about what her role was as uh, as justice minister and and as as attorney general. And I'm wondering if there's just on that basis, Duff, a conflict between holding both of those portfolios. Justice minister is a member of cabinet and and is involved in cabinet decisions. But what she tried to I think do yesterday was say there's a clear distinction between her role as an AG. Those are not cabinet decisions. Those are decisions based on law. That's right. And she actually uh, right at the end, which people may not have stuck around for <laughs> because it was very long. Um, right at the end, she uh, made it clear that uh, she thought that the House Justice Committee should study the proposal of splitting those two jobs. So having a Minister of Justice who is a politician and um, then having an Attorney General, she wasn't clear about whether that person should be a politician. Democracy Watch's position is they shouldn't. Uh, the British system is that the Attorney General is not a member of Cabinet, but is an MP from the ruling party. I don't think that would really improve things, because that MP would be subject to sure. the same kind of political pressure. So better to just have it be a lawyer. The, the Attorney General's role is to be the government's lawyer. And uh, the person directing prosecutions, we have a, that position separated already. It's the Director of Public Prosecutions. So let them decide prosecutions. The Attorney General is the government's lawyer, advising them about whether on following the law, and the Minister of Justice handles changes to laws. I think that was underscored by some of the questioning that occurred after, especially from some of the Liberal members of the committee, Duff. Uh, oh, when yeah, they, they went they, on the attack. At, well, not just on a personal attack, but they consistently uh, came after and said, well, you know, why didn't you seek, why can't you seek outside assistance on that? And she said, this is not a cabinet decision. She said, I appear before this committee on a regular basis if it's legislation that I'm trying to shepherd through for the, on behalf of the government. But AG are points of law. I don't consult. This is my job and the AG's job to do, not yours. And I, I thought yeah. she was quite adamant about that. Yeah, and there, there is one distinction, and they weren't um, giving this detail because they wanted to seem like it was normal for her to go out and seek outside counsel. The government does hire lawyers to do cases for them, um, specialized cases, where they don't have an in-house lawyer who knows the law very well. Sometimes they get overwhelmed with busyness, and also they do it to conflict out a bunch of law firms so that those law firms can never represent anybody suing the government. And they hand out about $50 million worth of contracts to to private lawyers each year. And it shouldn't be done as much. They should bring in more people because it's important for those people to be independent. And when these people are from law firms, they're often not as independent as they should be. They're representing other clients that, that have conflicts and, and uh, are clients of the government and things like that. But um, they were trying to confuse that and say, well, why can't you bring in outside help for a prosecution? No, not for prosecutions. <laughs> The government can't be bringing in private lawyers for a, for a prosecution. It, it has to be fully independent. And that was their one line of attack. Their other line was, well, obviously we never crossed the line, because if we had, you would have resigned. And there's no requirement for her to resign in that situation. She didn't do anything wrong. 
It was the people trying to pressure her who were violating the constitutional principles. And, and actually, on that point, of, I think at one point during her uh, Q&A, she actually said, if I resigned, I, I was afraid that they were just going to move ahead and, and do what they wanted to do anyway. Yes, but what she should have done, and where her hands are not clean in this situation, is she should have reported it publicly. Mm-hmm. If she was not going to resign, she should have come out publicly and said, I am being pressured in violation of a constitutional principle, and here are the people who are pressuring me. And it should have come out right away. And instead, she took another cabinet job and molded over. You know, because according to her testimony, by October, she was telling people, I've made my decision, you're now pressuring me, and it's not proper. It violates this constitutional principle. She should have been, we should have learned about this in October. And if she wasn't going to resign, she would have caused other people to resign because she would have gone public and named names, like we heard yesterday, and we would have heard that in October, and people would be gone from their jobs who had pressured her. Why didn't she? Well, because, because she's a they, liberal. The, so the issue wasn't going to go away. Yeah, she's a liberal. She's a cabinet minister. And uh, it, it, it's the one thing that I think quite legitimately, legitimately can be questioned about her behavior. If she had not been shuffled from her position... I don't think this ever would have come out. Well, it should have come out. And she's a lawyer, and she's under a duty as a lawyer to report violations of the law. And these are violations of the law. They're violations of a constitutional principle, which is part of the Constitution. So she should have reported it. Why didn't she? Because she was a cabinet minister. She wanted to remain in cabinet. She's a liberal. She's still part of the Liberal Caucus. If she wanted to leave the Liberal Party and really make things bad for the government, she would have left long ago. She would have resigned, and she would have done it very publicly. So she has that conflict of interest, and that's the reason not to have an attorney general who's a member of cabinet and and an MP from the ruling party, because they shouldn't have those two things in mind, maintaining their own career as a cabinet minister, protecting their own prime minister, protecting their party, versus upholding the rule of law. So make the attorney general a lawyer, uh, who is just a lawyer, and have them be independently connect, uh, selected and don't have them involved in prosecutions at all so that they don't ever face the situation of a conflict of interest. Duff, what about that distinction that she talked about? And, and again, in, in the Q&A from especially the Liberal members, uh, they kept coming back, and so did the Prime Minister, the 9,000 jobs, 9,000 jobs. And, 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 of course, she also talked about some conversations she had uh, with the Prime Minister himself about the fact that, uh, look, at I'm an MP from Quebec, and there's an election coming up this year. Uh, they, the indications that she seemed to be push, pushing was that, look, at they wanted me to put the economic impact and the political impact ahead of, of the law, and, and that's where she drew the line on that. Is, is that a fair description of what she was saying? Yes, very much so. And the government had a whole other solution. It, they still would have been, been making changes to protect SNC-Lavalin and would have had the political cost of people saying, oh, you're just protecting this big Quebec company. Um, but their whole other solution was, when they got elected, they could have changed the penalty, right? Because SNC-Lavalin is worried about the penalty of being barred for 10 years from bidding on federal government contracts. And that penalty can be changed. In fact, the federal government, the Procurement Canada uh, Department, Public Service Canada, is, is uh, looking at changing that penalty right now. And likely they will. And SNC-Lavalin may be prosecuted and may be found guilty, but won't face any penalty. But they didn't want to do it that way, because that would be openly protecting SNC-Lavalin. They tried to do it through this secretive way of stopping the prosecution. And they just, uh, they had to wear it one way or another, but it would have been far better for them to wear it as just saying, look, we think these penalties are too harsh. The Harper Conservatives brought them in. We disagree with them. We think that there should be a sliding scale of penalty depending on how the companies responded to bribery allegations and prosecutions, and uh, would give us the discretion to reduce the penalty significantly. And if they had done that, they still would have had some political costs, but they wouldn't have had this political cost. Well, it's uh, that old adage, isn't it? Sometimes it's not the crime, it's the cover-up, and that exactly. seems to be what's no, going on. No, it's true, and that's part of the problem here is, is they have shattered the trust. And when Prime Minister Trudeau in the next election says, I promise that we'll do this. Well, there's ample justification for people to say, we have no reason to believe you. Look what you've done. 
Look how many times you've misled us. And that's what they've shattered with this. And again, that's why if they had just changed the penalty, that would have been a shattering of trust. Would have, some people would have said you protect big business more than anything, but it wouldn't have made people not believe the liberals at all. And that's what Trudeau is now facing, is, is the opposition parties, I bet you, will focus very much on the trust issue in this upcoming election, because they have so many things to point to, not just this, the broken promise on electoral reform and other broken promises on cleaning up politics. And, and Trudeau will be standing there trying to say, you know, I, you should trust me to do the good thing and trust that I'll keep my promises. And there's just lots of reason for people to say, we don't believe you anymore. Sorry. Exactly. Well, the stench isn't going to go away anytime soon. Duff, thanks as always. I really appreciate your insight into this today. Thank you, Bill. Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm going to get into what happened uh, yesterday in Washington, too, with the Michael Cohen testimony. Uh, Laura Babcock, a good friend from a power group, joins us here in studio. Thanks for coming in on a busy day. My pleasure. Uh, I'm going to call an audible here. I want to talk about Conan in a couple of seconds, sure. but uh, I, I would be remiss uh, with you, the work that you do with Power Group and, and, and public relations, uh, to, to not get your comments about what you saw last night from Ottawa as well. Absolutely. If you're going to do a late-night press conference, obviously to try to contain a crisis like Trudeau did, you've got to make absolutely sure that you're setting the right tone. And last night, it was tone deaf. Here we had Trudeau wearing his pink shirt for anti-bullying, the sort of feminist-in-chief prime minister, very popular. Many people across this country obviously like him. They gave him a majority the first time out of the gate. And here he was forcing Canadians to choose between his staff and their arrogance, which clearly was the pattern throughout everything we learned about the SNC-Lavalin affair. They basically said, okay, we're done We're done being nice. You know, you got to play along to get along, Jody, or you're gone. That's pretty much the messaging. It's an arrogant positioning. They had no right to try to keep coming back at her in her role as the Attorney General. So that arrogance is why people are so angry. That overreach of power, that seeming almost, uh, you know, the PMO office has tremendous power, and Trudeau promised that he would be the one to take some of that power away from the PMO. Like his father, he said that there was a beautiful symmetry in history. His dad made the office too powerful, and he would be the one to try to change that. He didn't. He played to the worst people believe about the Trudeau brand, that they are superficial, it's all about appearances, he just wanted to win an election. And so here we are with a guy who's quoted as saying, you know, we can have the best policy in the world, but we have to get elected. It goes to what people don't like about Trudeau. And so he had an opportunity last night to say, well, we've reviewed this and found that we have been in accordance with the law and our office felt that we were being completely ethical and professional. Clearly, we have learning to do. Clearly, uh, we put Ms. Raybone in a position that was unfair to her. And we will work together with her and with the rest of our cabinet and caucus to improve our internal practices so that we can represent the needs of Canadians, blah, blah, blah. He didn't do that. He didn't give one ounce of the kind of humility that would have counterbalanced this. And what he's done is he's set people up to have to choose between him and everything they like about him and his policies and this very sympathetic woman who everyone believed in, who's also an Aboriginal, who has tremendous credibility and intelligence and tells stories better than he does. So now now what are Canadians supposed to do? The more they push against her, the worse it's going to get for them. And I, I can't, I guess the arrogance that started this whole mess is the arrogance that they still have to get over if they're going to fix it. All right, I got to ask you because I, one of the things you do with Power Group, of course, is when you're consulting with with some of your major clients, is is presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wilson Raybolt yesterday, her, as a, as a witness, forget about the content of what she said, but let's talk about body language. Let's mm-hmm. talk about her performance, and 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 I don't mean that in a in a negative way. I mean obviously you're you're you, there's a national TV audience here, and you, and you want to get your story across. How did she do? It was huge. So especially if you juxtapose the two big performances we were looking at. And, with Cohen, which we'll talk about in a moment. Cohen walked in looking to please, trying to make eye contact, nod his head, be affable, had his lawyers behind him the whole time, which we mostly watched. He looked like he needed to be supported. She walked in, did none of that, completely self-composed, didn't need people beside her or behind her. It was all her show because she knew that she had the notes. She knew that she had the memory. She knew that she had the articulation to make this all persuasive, 
from her. She was one of the top lawyers in the country. She knows what she's doing. So she was powerful. She was measured. She was very, there was a certain, in the way she laid out the timeline was something you would expect from a lawyer. She was very thorough. But what I found so compelling about her was that she used intonation. She wasn't just up there, you know, making the paint dry on the walls and us all thinking, oh my, okay, one more meeting with so-and-so from the PMO. She actually said things like, I had concerns, <laughs> you know, things that made you go, oh, okay, what is she really trying to tell us? She had limits to what she could say, but she used very, very powerful oratory skills to tell us more than the actual words. And she said at the end, this comes from her family tradition of storytelling. And so she's a very, very powerful witness of her own case. And I think that anyone watching it from any political background believed her. And this is why Trudeau trying to make it a him versus her thing is not a good strategy. Strategy. Well, he's still listening to the same people that got him into trouble, and maybe that's part that's of the strategy it. he has to rethink. All right, let's switch gears to uh, to uh, Washington. Uh, that was earlier in the day, of course, when Michael Cohen finally appeared before the uh, the House committee, and uh, well, that was a, a, a hotbed of controversy as well. I am ashamed that I chose to take part in concealing Mr. Trump's illicit acts rather than listening to my own conscience. I am ashamed because I know what Mr. Trump is. He is a racist, he is a con man, and he is a cheat. Uh, Not unlike what we heard later in the day from Ottawa. Uh, Cohen came out swinging right off the bat, didn't he? He did, and we had had his statement. He had leaked his statement the night before. It came out late late the night before, so many of us were kind of up till 3 in the morning trying to digest the 20 pages of it. Part of the reason why I think that was done is there have been efforts to intimidate him and his family, coming directly from the president's Twitter feed and from another city, uh, or another congressman who had to apologize, basically saying, I'll expose your affairs to your wife if you testify, that kind of thing, right? Uh, and so it had actually stopped him a few months ago. He was In February, he was supposed to go in front of mm-hmm. the world, and he cowered away from it because of fears about his family. So they leaked the statement to make absolutely sure no matter what happened in those 12 hours, we all got to hear it. But actually hearing him say it was something different. There's a power to the spoken word. There's a power to being able to look at the body language, look at the face, check for actual remorse. And as we heard in the most powerful speech of the day, Elijah Cummings closing, he said, you know, he hung his head in shame. This was not someone reading, I'm ashamed, I shouldn't have done it. You know, I'm going to go to jail for three years, do my do my time and then have a book deal you felt the pain coming off Michael Cohen he's a broken man and he's he elicited some sympathy maybe not empathy maybe you didn't understand him because you've never taken the shortcuts and made those horrible damaging decisions that he's made but you felt some sympathy and you thought to yourself okay uh, what I found most powerful though were the moments when he kind of broke out of all the Q&A and all of the you know the stuff that they were trying to do and he said things like you know I find it very ironic that that Trump told me he was too he wasn't stupid he wasn't ever going to go fight in Vietnam and yet here he is in Vietnam watching me right now you know and when he said I thought he actually spoke to Trump he a did, couple times right to the camera I mean, I'm, this, I'm not your fixer anymore that's right and these were the moments where you know someone made the comment both with Raybone and with Cohen who knew that revenge was best served at committee which I thought <laughs> was perfect um, but when he looked straight into the camera those were moments where you felt like wow this is something historic this felt almost Nixonian Watergate this idea of the emotional emotional intensity and this is real life people this is real life stuff and my other favorite line was when he went to the meta level and I know I'm a communications geek but he said what I find interesting guys can we just step back for a second is that this entire time you're asking me about me and he goes I thought I was here to testify about Trump I know what I did the world knows what I did I'm ashamed for it I'm going to jail for it Uh, but he said you guys are just asking about me and he goes as long as you continue this silliness and I'm responsible for starting this silliness for for downgrading the narrative for for getting this guy elected I'm part of all these terrible things that are happening in America he goes as long as you keep acting like me and follow Trump with blind loyalty you'll share my fate and it was these moments that kind of broke away from what we that were was, looking at. Wasn't that a Jacob Marley moment? Oh, yes, absolutely. He, he just turned it right around on he then did. and simply said, keep doing it. He says, you're doing what I did for 10 years. That's right. The ghost of, of crimes past or whatever yeah. you want to call it. It was incredibly powerful. And and it was a warning. And, and you can't help but think that some of those senators that were just in there or some of those Congress people on the committee who were just in there trying to play a role, uh, you almost got the sense there was a directive from the White House just attack Michael Cohen. Well, they all had the same talking they points. 
all had the same talking they, they, points. They talked about book deals and things. It of was this redundant. Nature. It you know the first time there was no gotcha moments. There was no moment where they really like ooh right. Um, and it's because their strategy was so full of vengeance and personal revenge for Trump, their single audience in Vietnam. They never, ever got into anything broader, you know? And so you almost watch the Republic. It almost became foolish, you know? And as a, when you contextualize that or you contrast that with Cortez, AOC, and the way that she, like, went with a scalpel at, at uh, Cohen and some of the other speeches, they, it was just a very weak moment. And so when he said, if you keep acting this way, you're acting like I did and you'll share my fate, I, I just, I, when is the last time you've ever that seen something like that. that wasn't scripted. He was just sitting there going, guys, I know what you're doing. Uh, I did this. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm going to jail. <laughs> right? there's, there's another moment very similar to that, too, and I can't remember which one of the Republicans that was going after him. And he was berating him for actually uh, accusing Trump of being a liar and a cheat. And, and, and the, 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 the congressman said, so what does that make you? And he said, a fool. Right. Right. They were hoping he'd say again, that I'm that a liar. Was a, that was a yeah. candid moment. It was. They were hoping, well, if he's a liar, what are you, they were hoping he'd say I'm a liar and a cheat again, right? They were, yeah. they were looking for the clip. Uh, and what instead he said is it, it made me a fool. It, you know, he was trying to say, and I think that Elijah Cummings summed it up for him at the end, you're trying to tell us uh, basically the con that's been played on this country and that we'd better get back to the normal we had before the Trump administration, the Trump era, uh, because otherwise we're in trouble. And and so there were moments when I believed Cohen most was when he was kind of looking at other guys going, come on, guys, I, I've kind of stopped drinking the Kool-Aid. Please stop drinking the Kool-Aid for the sake of the country. Uh, and he felt badly when he said, when you needed me to tell the truth the most, this was during the election, right? When I was in front of Congress or early on, I forget the last time he was there, the time that he lied, because when you needed me to tell the truth the most, I let you down. You know, he realizes he will live with the rest of his life with the pain that he helped um, play a con, it, it looks like, on America, according to his testimony. And every time that they went after him for the very things that he was alleging of of his boss, his former boss, the president, Donald Trump, it didn't make Trump look any better. And this is why the strategy seems so personal and so off base. Yeah, sure, maybe they got some punches in on Cohen. Maybe they hurt him a little bit, but none of it made Trump look any better, you know? Again, I want to get into technique for just a second mm-hmm. here because I, I, I was getting very frustrated watching this, as I'm sure a lot of other people were. And, and some of it was the partisan attacks, and we get that. And, and, and very little talk about Trump himself. It was mostly about Cohen's character. Uh, but uh, just as a general assumption I've made watching those two things yesterday, politicians are lousy interrogators mm-hmm. because their first priority is to make political points. It's not to seek the truth. And some of these guys are lawyers. But they just didn't get it uh, that because Cohen gave them opportunity to say, well, who else was there? What was happening? They didn't do that. They just they, they, they it's it's like the classic example of somebody who's doing a, a, a Q&A and all they're doing is reading the next question. They didn't listen to the answer. Of course. There were and, opportunities and that, there. And that's why I mean that I feel as though they were a little too directed and scripted. And I think that's why he broke through the kind of fourth wall and said, guys, this silliness, like, I know what you're doing. You're just repeating what Trump wants you to say. Uh, like, what are you doing here, right? You're here to ask me questions about whatever, Russia, Trump, the last two years, and you're spending your time on these, just this recycled attacks on him. He said, like, do the American people really care about my taxes? I'm going to jail for that, right? So what we saw from a technique point of view was uh, a very limited strategy, very scripted. That explains the redundancy. Uh, there was a couple, only people who showed up. Meadows had some dramatic moments. Uh, and Jordan, they kept throwing it back every time they got their time. No, they he was the bulldog. It, they seeded it back to Jordan because they really had nothing. And they kept throwing it back to him. And he had a couple of moments. But you felt like you were watching them try to just perform for Trump. To just try to say, he's watching Vietnam, he's angry, and we better take it to the guy he's angry at. It was it was the most limited, um, and to your point, inconsequential testimony or, or grilling I've ever seen. Now, you contrast that again to Cortez. She didn't waste time with an opening statement to to stand on a soapbox and have her clip for her constituents. She can do that on Twitter. So she was the most powerful person effectively in that room. And so she didn't waste her time on trying to make herself look good. She spent her time going, who else knew? What else should we be looking for? How else should we get the information? She was going to use the five minutes she had with him to advance the investigation. And whatever you think about her Green New Deal or about some of her beliefs, in that room, it was best practice in terms of performance, technique, and interrogation. One of the things that they said even before he sat down there was because of his credibility or lack thereof, uh, that he had to bring something to the table. He had to bring 
something to prove. Mm -hmm. Uh, The checks obviously were part of that, but was there enough there to to sway people that might have been skeptical about him and his character? Well, this is where Meadows had his best moments when he said, okay, so uh, I believe it was Meadows when he said, so we've got your checks, but how do we know what they were for? Well, because I just told you, yeah, but you're a liar. Well, but Mr. Trump, did Mr. Trump email it? He doesn't use email. Did he text? He doesn't use text. So all we have to believe is your conversations with a guy who talks in code and doesn't say anything directly. So I thought that was the most powerful way of making what looked like documentary evidence a little bit less, you know, it gave some talking points for people but who But you noticed there was a quick aside there while Meadows mm-hmm. was, uh, uh, he leaned back to yeah, his, his lawyer. Yeah, his lawyer. And his and lawyer said, 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 he said, Rudy Giuliani right. said that they were for that. And that was, was the repayment. only time that I saw the lawyers tap him on the shoulder other than to give him water uh, to say, uh, hold on, here's your answer. Giuliani himself confirmed the communication, right? And, and he came back with that. So the, you're right. That was a gotcha moment. That, that was a clever moment from Cohen's team. But it did kind of erode the edges of that, that documentation. And that's why Cortez said, where else should we be looking? What other documents will confirm what you're saying, right? She wasn't stupid. She didn't just sit there and try to say, I believe you, I feel for your family, or Trump's a terrible president or whatever she wanted to say. She just said, okay, give us more. Where can we find more so that this credibility issue isn't a big deal? And, and just the premise of that, by the way, just the idea that you can't have a liar expose another liar criminal. I mean, isn't that how courts work? Think of Sammy the Bull. Sure. Right? I mean, you, you, the people who know the liars and the criminals are liars and criminals themselves. Birds of a feather flock together. So that's why they get these deals to come in and have their moment of fessing up, which is what yesterday was. The other element to this, too, is is uh, we, we can't just conflate everything that's going on here. Uh, what, mm. what Cohen said yesterday is not the t- sum total of what the Mueller investigation has done. I mean, th- that's a separate uh, issue altogether. So even some of those blanks that he couldn't fill in does not suggest for a second that the Mueller team has not already done that. We just don't know. They haven't made that presentation yet. Absolutely. And he said at the end he's in constant contact with Mueller's team, right? Uh, or with SDNY. Well, there so, were a couple of times yeah, where he said, I can't answer that can't, because it's an ongoing investigation. Because he's still going. So there, what I got out of it that we didn't know yesterday um, was... We didn't know that Michael Cohen would have those powerful moments looking right at Trump. Those, that, was, that was different. That sort of gave you a really good sense of the relationship and better insight into Trump's character and his, and his world. But what we also didn't know was, I think, the extent of what the Southern District of New York has on Trump and the family. You know, we started to hear Ivanka and, and the kids' names, right? And the fact that there seems to be multiple tracks of investigations against the Trump family in New York where you can't pardon. Trump can't pardon. You lose pardon power on state investigations, right? So I think that we got a sense that there is real legal jeopardy for Trump and his family and his organization. And Donnie Deutsch, who's a good friend of Michael Cohen's, said yesterday morning that, you know, Trump will lose his buildings in this. Like this, this is just the presidency may come or go, impeachment may happen or not happen. Um, but there are going to be long term consequences. And yesterday, listening to Michael Cohen, you got a sense of how grave that just might be. It's uh, it's not over. Uh, clearly, the, uh, the the testimony yesterday uh, is going to be a, a partnered with what he's going to do behind closed doors, and that's going to be the Russian involvement. I know they touched on that briefly yesterday, mm-hmm. but I got the sense that was the tip of the iceberg. It is, and the Russian, even though the uh, so the committee is charged with. Uh, trying to figure out what's going on and hold these witnesses who lied to them to account, first of them being Michael Cohen. And so Russia, while it was part of a little bit of the subtext, Mueller's working on that. This committee wanted to understand all of the things that were going on that Michael Cohen had lied to them about. And so that, I think, opened up a lot of different paths for other oversight committees and investigations within the Commons, right, or within the uh, Congress. One thing that was clear is that had the midterms not been won by the Democrats, had they not taken the House, the amount of, of it looked like swampiness going on and still swirling around uh, would pretty be, it was pretty devastating. So, we got checks and balances yesterday. Uh, it may not do anything in terms of Trump's presidency or re-election, and I don't think the Democrats can overreach. But what we did at least see was Congress doing its job, which is to try to get some truth. And I think there'll be a lot more committee investigations based on what Cohen said. Laura Babcock, president of uh, Power Group. Thanks, as always. Great to have you here. Thanks. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As uh, eyes were focused on the Cohen testimony in Washington and, well, on this side of the border, of course, the uh, Jody Wilson-Raybolt uh, testimony in Ottawa about what was going on, uh, what seemed to get pushed to the back pages and, and the secondary stories and newscasts was the summit uh, between uh, Donald Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un, which was uh, the second summit between the two, of course, which was taking place in Hanoi in uh, North Vietnam. 
And uh, it was interesting uh, because a lot of people were questioning why the summit was even taking place. Uh, what was the purpose of this whole thing? Uh, some suggesting it's one of those wag the dog scenarios where he was just trying to get the headlines away from what was happening with the Mueller investigation and others. But there was some discussion that went on. But uh, the president uh, said yesterday that he walked away from uh, a nuclear deal at his summit with Kim Jong-un because of unacceptable demands from the North Korean leader to lift those uh, U.S.-led sanctions. Uh, said two days of talks in, Vietnam, in the Vietnam capital uh, made some good progress in building relations on the two issues. But i got to tell you, though, when they're standing there at the end of it, they, neither one of them looked really happy about what was going on. So what did happen? And what are the ramifications? Well, uh, pleased to welcome to the program Mark Haitchin, a Ph.D. candidate in international affairs, international conflict management and resolution at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Mark, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Bill. Let me ask you, are you surprised that they basically both went away with nothing? Um, yeah, in a sense, I am, because if it, last year's summit is any indication, Trump has been pretty willing to make a good deal of concessions to Kim Jong-un on the whole nuclear front. So the fact that they both walked away without achieving anything kind of came out of the blue. It's uh, yeah, People are always going to compare it, I guess, with the first summit. And, and of course, uh, we remember the press conference as at that first summit was ending in Singapore, and uh, both of them just jumping up and down about, and especially Trump's standpoint, saying, look, we've got these guys to promise to denuclearize. The threat is over. Everything is going to be fine. And people thought, hey, this is great. Uh, we, you know, we even had the the Japanese prime minister apparently nominate Trump for a Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, I, I don't know if this deflates the nomination now after something like this, but I guess the obvious question we might ask, Mark, is why meet in the first place? I mean, was there something pressing on the agenda? I know that North Korea certainly still has concerns about the sanctions, but what was in it for Trump? Well, it basically it makes him look like a deal maker. The North Korea situation has been an issue for the U.S. for decades now, multiple presidential administrations, and there have been some deals reached in the past. Namely, there was a 1994 deal with the Bill Clinton's administration, but ultimately those end up falling through. So if Trump could actually get North Korea to denuclearize or even make progress towards that, that would be a big coup for him, especially since he built his reputation as a deal maker. So, but, what, what, but there's no deal. No. Well, the issue here is... And th- this is still fairly early on, so a lot of information isn't out yet. But from what the U.S. has said, the North Korea wanted total sanctions relief, and in exchange they would give up their main nuclear facility at Yongbyon. But for the U.S., the problem is that this would do nothing for North Korea continuing to produce missiles, warheads, various other weapon systems. There are other covert facilities that would still remain, and they weren't willing to lift sanctions unless those were taken care of as well. And, uh, I mean, at this point, there's even some rumor, and this is still unverified, that uh, the talks were derailed in part by the U.S. making additional demands for reporting on North Korea's chemical and biological weapons. And that might have been what pushed North Korea to demand that sanctions be lifted in their entirety. Now, that's still unverified, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. I want to get you a read on something else that uh, I, I'm doing some reading on this this morning. And, you know, I'm trying to get those perspectives as you have, I'm sure, Mark. Mm-hmm. I guess there wasn't a whole lot of information coming out of the uh, the, the the post meeting uh, conference uh, as there usually is. Uh, and, and some of the, the the pundits were speculating that part of the problem here, as uh, you know, you talked about Trump as you know the deal maker. At least that's what he tries to to, to bill himself as. Uh, he also prides himself in, in the fact that he's such a good deal maker that he just he just needs to sit down and they can work everything out. And you and I both know that whenever the world leaders meet, uh, the, the 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 grunt work, the heavy lifting, is usually done by diplomats days, weeks, sometimes months ahead of time. And and the meetings themselves are really just photo ops. It sounds as if a lot of that pre-game stuff wasn't done, and that might have been at the president's direction. I don't know what was going on, but it, 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 as you're mentioning, it seems as if things were being thrown onto the table at the last minute, and that's usually not a way to get things done. That's correct. Like, the way these summits usually go is there's a lot of bureaucrats and diplomats between the countries involved negotiating with each other like getting their facts straight on the issues, making sure that they have consensus and that there's some kind of maybe not finalized agreement, but at least like some starting points to work with. And 
I mean, this is the same as the Singapore summit. There, this doesn't seem to have happened with the Trump, the Kim talks. They seem to largely be based on Trump just talking with Kim and whatever arrangements they can come up with is what they go with. And it seems like North Korea has even refused to really play along with uh, the U.S. special representative, uh, Stephen Began. And they seem to be relying on the fact that Trump is willing to make a lot of concessions. He's not going to be necessarily aware of the issues the way he would be if he prepared in advance. And it seems like part of the difference here is that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was directly involved as well. And he seems to be a little more skeptical of North Korean intentions than uh, the president is. Well, it gets back to a point, and I, I don't mean to belabor this, but I mean, it's a factor here, and I think we have to discuss this. Uh, we know, uh, because Trump rarely admits that he doesn't read reports, he doesn't take briefings, he doesn't, he doesn't do that homework. Yeah, I mean, homework is the best analogy here. This is essentially the equivalent of a student showing up for a final exam, having studied maybe the day before, and what a surprise, doesn't pass the exam. Yeah, and and we've seen that time and time and time again. Uh, you know, there's got to be a, a, some level of, of understanding of knowledge about what the events are and what the ramifications are. Uh, and, and certainly Trump didn't do that. But it, again, this is this is the narcissist in him where he just simply says, well, I don't need that stuff. I, I, I'm so overpowering uh, and so charismatic and, and th- that I'm going to win this anyway. I'm going to get this done. And uh, obviously people know that that's the attitude. And, and I guess the question you have to ask is when you look at what's gone on here, uh, is Kim Jong-un playing Donald Trump? That definitely seems to be the case. It, I mean, part of it is also that the U.S. and North Korea have very different conceptions of what denuclearization means in this case. For the U.S., that means just North Korea gives up their nuclear weapons, and, and it's in a verifiable manner so that there's no way they just hide a, a warhead or two somewhere or that they keep a, a secret facility, and in exchange, the U.S. would lift sanctions. For North Korea, what that means is that what they perceive as threats against it, so say the U.S. presence in South Korea, possibly in Japan, maybe even nuclear weapons that would be aimed in North Korea's direction are eliminated, and then it gets rid of its nuclear weapons. Because those nuclear weapons are North Korea's insurance, essentially against a possible invasion and regime change, which they've seen what happened to Saddam Hussein in Iraq, to Gaddafi in Libya. They're even looking as far back as, say, Ceausescu in Romania back in, in the Cold War. If you don't have nuclear weapons to protect yourself, your regime will collapse, and that's a death sentence for the leadership, quite literally. Well, you're absolutely right. It's it's as if that's that's the wild card that they can play, and it's, it's really protection from the enemies from within, isn't it? Uh, in part, because it's partially also that there's internal pressure within North Korea. There's a lot of military leaders who are in favor of having nuclear weapons. Their, their conventional forces just can't keep up with even South Korea, much less the U.S. And so Kim Jong-un is heavily reliant on generals, as his father was, to stay in power. So he has to throw them a bone. And at this point, nuclear weapons are actually considered an integral part of North Korea's identity. It was actually added into the North Korean constitution that it is a nuclear weapon state. They've given up a lot to get to this point. They've endured sanctions for decades. It's caused incredible economic hardship for their citizens. And if they just give them up without getting a lot in return, it's going to be massively destabilizing for the country. Well, and and I think you've underscored a very important part of this discussion that that maybe uh, the the, the U.S. delegation, I don't just mean the president, but the delegation in general does not seem to understand or doesn't want to uh, admit to, uh, it, it's, the, it's the nuclear weapons that, that Kim Jong-un hangs on to. I mean, uh, we've had the discussion many times about why that first summit took place after, as you say, the antagonistic attitude between the two countries for many, many years, is Kim Jong-un wants to be known as an, as an international player. He wants to be with the big guys in the major leagues, and the nuclear weapons put him there. Why, in heaven's name, I guess, Mark, it's somewhat of a rhetorical question, why would he give up the nuclear weapons? Because he knows that that means he's not in the big leagues anymore. And I mean, his main interest here, if anything, is getting sanctions lifted so that North Korea's relations with the rest of the world are somewhat normalized. There can be actual economic development so that it can start catching up to South Korea, at least. And I think you touch on an interesting issue here, actually, that it seems like the U.S. is starting to realize they are operating on different definitions of denuclearizing, and that might very well be what caused there to be no deal. 
they've realized we're operating with different ideas here. You want something very different than what we want, and we'd have to give up something that we're not ready to unless you actually make more progress. There's another element to this, too, that uh, I think the rest of the world is aware of, but nobody seems to want to talk about it uh, overtly. Uh, the sanctions we know are, are having a negative effect on North Korea and on the economy. I think that's uh, that's a given. But but maybe not as severe as we might think, because we know that some countries, uh, notably China and Russia, are, are backdooring North Korea, uh, you know, stopping in the middle of the ocean and transferring stuff onto other ships, etc. Uh, so maybe maybe North Korea is not as, as much of a hurry to actually get these sanctions lifted as, as they're really suggesting they are right now, because they understand that, look it, we do have some help here. We just can't say exactly what it is or who's doing it. Uh, yeah, like North Korea is heavily reliant on China and Russia for support. It's been that way for decades, and the fact that that temporarily ended with the Cold War was a massive blow. It led to a huge famine that killed potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. But you have to keep in mind that this is essentially keeping the country on a subsistence level. It wasn't trading much with other states to begin with, but if Kim wants to develop the country economically and there's indications that he does, he needs sanctions lifted in order to be able to do that. So he can hold out with the sanctions as they are, sure, as long as China and Russia keep lending support, and even that's going to be limited somewhat. But if he wants his country to prosper, actually getting the sanctions lifted would be an immense help to him. Well, and, and we all know the other story that's going around there, and again, it's, it's never been validated yet, but we, it's out there, and we keep hearing it from time to time. Uh, for a country that's trying to get their economic foothold, uh, such as North Korea, uh, the, the nuclear technology that they develop right now could be for sale, and we know that Iran is interested in something like this. So we know that there have been some conversations in the past about this, and uh, that, that's not over yet, is it? I mean, there's still, there's still a threat that needs to be realized here. Yeah, that's definitely one of the big concerns that North Korea ends up becoming so economically desperate. It starts selling nuclear technology or even weapons to other countries. And as you said, Iran's the prime example here. That being said, that would definitely be a desperation move because if that technology or those weapons end up getting traced back to North Korea, especially if, if the worst happens, someone actually uses them, they would essentially be guilty by association. That would be a disaster for the regime. So... I wouldn't say they're going to resort to that kind of approach immediately, but if they have nothing else, I don't see what would stop them besides Iran maybe not being willing to go back towards nuclear weapons development at this point. And as it is with sanctions having been restored by the U.S. following the collapse of the, well, not the total collapse of the JCPOA, but a significant part of it, they definitely have motivation to at some point down the line. What's this going to do to the relationship? I mean, after the first summit, uh, well, well, we all know the characterization. Donald Trump said that they fell in love. Uh, they like they liked each other so much, and uh, that obviously got everybody rolling their eyes. But uh, there was some sort of a relationship. We don't know how sincere it is. But as I say, there's still some speculation that Kim Jong Un is just playing Trump. And uh, let's face it, the the photo ops that he can present to his people back home in North Korea. Are, are worth more than anything Donald Trump could convert back to the United States. I mean, uh, for a guy that wants to be a player and be seen with the most powerful politician in the world, uh, that improves his status within his own people. So there's a win there for, for Kim, no matter what he happens or whether or not he brings something back with him. But uh, what does this do to the relationship right now? Does, is it sullied right now? Is, is there going to be an attempt to try to find a, 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 a deal someplace else? Well, it's hard to say at the moment because North Korea hasn't released any statements regarding the lack of a deal yet. So it's still too early to say what they think. But from the indications that have come up so far, it seems like it was relatively amicable. So it's entirely possible they have a summit again in the future. There isn't anything lined up yet. But Trump still, still seems to be speaking fairly warmly about Kim Jong-un at this point. So I wouldn't say that if this is going to lead to a collapse in relations. It's a setback, but it's one that could be, both sides could recover from. And you're correct in saying that no matter what, Kim Jong-un wins from this just because it lends him a lot of prestige and legitimacy. The uh, the other element to this, too, is uh, getting a little bit uh, into the U.S. political scene here. i got a minute or so left here. 
Uh, given what's happening domestically right now with the, the Cohen testimony, and I, I know that Trump was dismissive of that, but you know, it's still there. Uh, the Mueller report is pending. Uh, a number of other things that are going on, of course, the uh, the democratically controlled Congress uh, just uh, uh, gave a thumbs down to uh, his uh, his national emergency uh, situation. That's probably going to go to the Senate, maybe even to the courts eventually. He needed a win badly here. He needed to come away with something to say, look, it, I'm still the guy. I'm, I'm getting it done. He's, he, the administration has to be disappointed with what happened. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I'm not sure how much exactly the Mueller report and the, the Cohen testimony played into the summit. I mean, this has been planned out for a bit. The, the reports that Mueller's report might come out soon are fairly recent. So, I mean, yes, he does need a win. He's getting beat up fairly badly on the home front. Um, but how much those necessary play into the desire to have the summit in the first place, it's hard to say at this point. But for a guy who's trying to have a show a, a foreign policy victory here, uh, and 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 reassert the uh, I guess the U.S. dominance in those affairs. Uh, he's running out of partners, isn't he? When you look at what's happening, Mark, not too many people yeah, in NATO. Yeah. Not too many people in NATO are returning his phone calls anymore, uh, and there aren't too many other places he can knock on and say, "Look, let's get together and do something." Yeah, he's definitely uh, been alienating a lot of international partners uh, during uh, his term so far. I mean, if you want to look at nuclear issues, you just look at uh, Mike Pence uh, go, speaking to EU leaders and trying to get them to reimpose sanctions on Iran as well. And granted, he's had some success in in, in terms of North Korea. It's been very good for his relationship with Japan, with South Korea as well, which is conducting its own negotiations to try to improve relations. But on the whole, yeah, he needs he needed the foreign policy win here. He didn't get it. It's, it's not as big a loss as it could have been. And I don't think we need to be concerned about tensions increasing the way they were back in the summer of 2016. But he, I think he expected to do a lot better here, and he's going home disappointed. Well, uh, he'll be home and uh, on the Twitter feed in no time at all, and I guess we'll get some ideas to what he's going to do next. Mark, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on here, Bill. Great talking with you. Mark Hatchin, of course, a Ph.D. candidate, uh, International Conflict Management at uh, the Patterson School of International Affairs up at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.